And amen. Welcome. My name is Doug Payne. Thank you. My name is Doug Payne. Uh, I'm the, one of the pastors here. Uh, it, if I haven't met you before, welcome. I'd love to meet you afterwards, back by the door or somewhere else. Uh, this is exciting, right? Uh, new, new chapter in the story of the branches history. And uh, in a new book, the, the Gospel of Mark, if you're not there, I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles or scroll there in your phones, however you choose to get there. While you're turning there, I just encourage you, um, sometimes when you receive a handout, uh, every week, it can become white noise, but there's a lot of good things in here, kind of some things telling us why we do the things we do on the front. Why do we talk about the gospel every week? Well, that's super important for our gathering um, uh, because the gospel's our only hope. It, it's what gets us um, in a relationship with God and what sustains us and what sustains us till the end. Um, there's other things as you open up in the middle, um, announcements, also ways to connect in a community group and with the leaders of this church via email. Um, and so I encourage you to look at that, uh, look it over and uh, be encouraged by it. So this morning we are in the gospel according to Mark. These are Jesus's good words to us through a human author about himself, about Jesus himself. And I want to ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Just want that to sit on your mind for a second. We, we come into this gathering, and some of us call ourselves Christians, some of us uh, maybe you're just interested in Christianity. Some of us are on the fringes, or some of us are very religious. But what? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a prophet? Is he a good teacher? Is he a God and not man, or is he man and not God? Well, the Gospels—that is when we flip from what Hannah read this morning from Malachi and we flip over those hundreds of years of silence, we flip over to something called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the New Testament of the Christian Bible. We flip from the Old Testament of the Christian Bible to the New Testament of the Christian Bible. And what those New Testament, those Gospels mean to do is to hold up Jesus as the good news for a world that was lost without him, for a people that had forsaken him, and actually that he at one point had forsaken and so the gospels come in, and, and the gospel literally means, it's the Greek word euangelion, it literally means good news. And this is the announcement. You got to wonder, like, why are they called that? Well, the story of Scripture from Genesis to Malachi is uh, a story about bad news. It, it has a lot of bad news in it, right? It's the story of a God who created everything good and put his people inside of it in, the, in this temple, in this garden, and said, worship me, and I'll give you everything you need. I am everything you need. And Adam and Eve plunged the human race into sin by, by disobeying the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree. 
This is bad news. The conflict enters. God is bringing order to chaos in creation. And now the lowest created thing, the serpent, is bringing chaos to the order of God's good creation. There's, this, there's an inverted creation order here. The people who are supposed to be listening to God are now listening to the lowest created thing. And they're disobeying God. And God said, I have good for you. But the people said, do you really have good for us? So there's bad news. And God speaking order out of chaos. Now the, the order is being turned into chaos. And you see it throughout the scriptures. And from Genesis then to Malachi, we, we read about, uh, about, about God's... Um, about how his promise is being worked out. Because right there in Genesis 3.15, uh, as, as soon as sin entered into the world, there was also a promise that entered the world. That God would send his son, the offspring of his, of his, own, uh, of his, of his own person, the offspring of the woman, would come. And, and, she, and he would bruise the head of the serpent. And then from Genesis to Malachi, just, you just trace it out, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through the, the historical books and the, and the writings and, and, and the poetry and the prophets, you can just trace it out. The question being answered, is this the one that will return us to what we were supposed to be? Is he the one? Is Abraham the one? Is Moses the one? Will, will they bring order back to our chaos? Is David the one? He looks like he's going to be the one. He's God's king. He's bringing, he's bringing uh, good order to the kingdom of Israel. But he, will he be the one? And we see right away that he's not the one. He's disappointed. He's, a, he's disappointing. He's a sinner. And he brings more chaos into the world. And all of, all of that ends up in the question but promise of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, at the, at the end of the Old Testament, the, new, the, the Christian scriptures, Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen... Oh, sorry, wrong one. Uh, it, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here comes, here comes the one, the promised one, but he's not here yet. And, and the kings and the, and the prophets, they all disappointed. So who would it be? And here in comes the Gospels with shining light. You turn to Matthew, you turn to Mark, you turn to Luke, you turn to John, and they're answering the question of the, of the Old Testament people, who will save us? And so we are going to be spending some time in the Gospel of Mark over this next year. We're going to be spending time in the Gospel of Mark as he answers that question for us. Who is Jesus? Who, who is the one that will come to save us? Well, it is Jesus. He's that one. He is son of God. He is the son of man. He's the Messiah, and he's come to set you free. 
So today, what I want to do is, is give an overview of the book of Mark. Um, so we're not going to be in any specific passage. And it may be helpful if you just listen and, and mark the passages that I, I, I mark for you and, and look them up later. Uh, but, but we're going to be in the book of Mark, and we're going to try to get an overall understanding of what Mark is all about. So this isn't the typical... Um, verse-by-verse verse kind of a sermon that we're used to, but, but I think, as I, I hope to have done this expositionally, I hope you will be helped by getting a level of meaning from this that maybe we don't get by being right down in the weeds of things. So, an overview sermon, I'm, I'm just trying to argue for it here, so, so you'll agree with me that I should have done this, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it's one thing to be, to be down in uh, verse by verse. It's kind of like being in a city, right? You, you travel the roads, uh, you look at the architecture up close, and you see the, the beauty of a city like Corvallis. Uh, there's there's an, another way to view a city, and that's from above, right? Either from an airplane or a skyscraper. No skyscrapers in Corvallis that I know of. Uh, maybe from the courthouse you could see this. I don't know. So, as, as your 30,000-foot view over, you get a different perspective of the lay of the land, don't you? You see how things are interconnected. You can see the road system and, 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 and how things uh, flow from one thing to the next. Well, that's what I hope the uh, sermon uh, overview sermon will do for us this morning. So, uh, so as we're going to be in the book of Mark for a year, we'll probably we'll take a break uh, for Easter. We'll do John 11 for Easter. We'll do uh, summer in the Psalms, but probably over the next year, we're going to be in the book of Mark, and, and Lord willing, we're, we are going to behold Jesus for who he is as the Son of Man and Messiah. So just to set the stage, that's one of the things it's, it's good for us as we do an overview is we get the context of the book within the, within the storyline of the Bible. Um, it's really dangerous to, to take a book out of the context of, of what it's meant to be placed in. You can do all kinds of things with that. All kinds of errant theology comes from doing that. So we, we want to place it in, in, its, uh, in its context of the storyline of the Bible. And we also want, we want to get what the book is about as a whole. If there is a purpose of this book, what is it? And so the Gospels, what are they? The Gospels are uh, narrative accounts um, of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and they mean to be holding Jesus up as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament was, was forecasting. It was, it was foreshadowing. It was, it, was, uh, it was telling us that there's someone yet to come. And the Gospels mean to say, that one was Jesus. And he's, he's not anything of what you think. Well, he's some of what you think, but he's so much more. And you can see the disciples in their response to him and, and the religious leaders in their response to him. And you might even think of yourself in your response to Jesus. If you're able to, I'd encourage you to take an hour, hour and a half, and read through the book of Mark and just, just see who Mark says that Jesus is. Is he what you thought? How about before you became a Christian? Is he any different 
now than what you thought at first? Does he sort of smash your expectations? You know, if, if I come to Jesus, my life is just going to turn out better. I, I, things, are gonna, things are just going to work out. My, my life is going to be good. Uh, Jesus will never fail me. He'll never leave me. And then you become a Christian and, and, and you realize, yes, he's never left me or failed me, but sometimes he seems far off. My life isn't quite as good as I, I thought it might be. That's the same sort of thing. Jesus is coming and he's sort of smashing the ideal of what people thought the Messiah was supposed to be. But he is the fulfillment of it, the reality of it. And within the context of the Bible and the Old Testament, he shows us what Messiah actually is. He's the reality of every shadow, the antitype of every type. And, and, and the Gospels are not only narrative accounts of Jesus, uh, they're, they're not quite biography, they give biographical, biographical information, uh, but they're really, they're really passion narratives. Here's the emphasis, is driving us right to the Passion Week, right? If you don't know what that is, that's the, that's the one week of, of Jesus' suffering and death, and these are passion narratives with some biographical content, about how Jesus is bringing the kingdom, how Jesus is the true king of the kingdom, uh, uh, and, and the way he brings the kingdom is through his suffering and death and resurrection. If, if that's odd to you, you're not alone. One of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, he rebuked Jesus for saying this very thing. So this is kind of what the Gospels are and what they're meant to do. And we're just going to follow a, a three-point outline, um, uh, how people understood Jesus, all right? So how Mark understood Jesus, how Jesus understood Jesus, and, and how people understood Jesus. So, so we're going to start with how Mark understands Jesus. How does Mark understand Jesus? Well, we're just going to look at some, some things about the book of Mark as a whole, uh, in terms of source and style and his content. So the, the book of Mark was written by, most likely, we think it was written by a man named John Mark. John Mark was, um, he was the cousin of Barnabas who traveled with Paul in Asia. Uh, he, Barnabas and Paul actually separated. They went different ways over John Mark because he went home to be with his mom and, and family uh, during a missionary journey. And Paul was, not, Paul was not happy about that and said, I, I don't think we should bring him. Barnabas said, yes, we should. He's my cousin after all. And so they, they, they split ways. And, and you can see uh, even, even among apostles and, and major leaders in the church, we can have different, differing opinions and, and go our separate ways. But John Mark uh, is mentioned also in 1 Peter 5.13. I don't know if you noticed that when Davy preached, but uh, uh, Peter says, from Babylon, I greet you, and so does my son Mark. So it's apparent, it's apparent that if we're right about who the author is, that, that Peter and John Mark are very close. And, and he says, my son in the faith greets you. Actually, towards the end of Acts, Paul, um, now I can't remember which book it is, but uh, 
maybe it's in Timothy, that, that Paul tells, uh, he says, bring Mark with you, for he is profitable for me. We think that's the same Mark who's the author uh, of this book. And what a kindness, if that is true, what a kindness of God to restore a man like John Mark, who at once was a failure, but now is brought back and is actually writing the account of Peter. The uh, early church father, Papias, that's too bad. No, I did, I did print it out. Okay. Uh, Papias said this about about the book of Mark. He says, this is what the elder used to say. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. For he had not himself heard the Lord or been his follower. But later, as I said, he followed Peter. Peter delivered teachings as occasion required, rather than compelling a sort of orderly presentation of the tradition about the Lord. So Mark was not wrong in recording it in this way, the individual items as he remembered them. His, was, his one concern was to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in reporting them. Now, Papias was, it was early in the second century, and, and if, if he is accurate, and, and many scholars believe that he is accurate, the elder is probably the Apostle John, and he's talking about uh, Peter being the source for, for Mark's gospel. Mark writing it down, he's getting the account from Peter, he's just, he's just sitting there, and Peter's recounting sort of in a haphazard way about his life with Jesus and his, uh, and, and, uh, his ministry, and, and, and Peter's very honest about his failings. And you can see it come through in the, in the book of Mark. Uh, Peter, Peter is, is pretty clearly self-effacing. He's, he, he's, he's very vivid about his betrayal of the Lord he's, uh, and the other apostles as well. Uh, we have every reason to believe this is John Mark, and he wrote this at, with Peter as his source. It's, it's possible that Peter actually... Uh, excuse me, Mark actually uh, has a cameo appearance in uh, 14 verse 51. He says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who that is, but it's, it's likely that it is John Mark and John and Peter are, uh, Mark and Peter are, are, are facing uh, self-effacing. Uh, they, they don't think much about themselves. This, is, this goes contrary to, to what many secular New Testament scholars would say about the Bible. Those are, who are opponents against the New Testament Gospels, uh, they, they would say, look, this is just propaganda that's, uh, that's trying to you know, boost Jesus' uh, reputation and the apostles' reputation. Well, who does that by talking about themselves like this? It's just more likely that this is actually a historical document that should be trusted. If you, uh, this, is on our, this is on our book nook or whatever, the bookshelf back there. If you, wanna, uh, if you, if you have any concerns about the New Testament Gospels or, or you want to know more about uh, if we can trust them or not, Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? is a very helpful resource. So can we trust the Gospels? Well, I, I think... 
with the evidence laid before you, yes, I, I do think we can trust the Gospels even if we have questions. So, the, so that's, you know, that's Mark's, that's the source, that's who he is, that's, uh, but how did he write? How, how did Mark understand Jesus? And, and therefore, how did Peter understand Jesus if, if Peter was his source? Well, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Like I said before, you can read it in about an hour. Even for those of us who are slow readers, you can read it in about an hour. It's, um, it's 16 chapters long in one city, and you could, you could just get through it. And what you'll notice right away if you've read through the Gospel of Mark is how fast-paced it is, right? His, his favorite word is this word, uh, euthus in Greek. It's immediately or, or straightway. Uh, and, and he just uses it all the time. This happened, and, and then this immediately, then this happened. Notice in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 10, he says, and this is Jesus' baptism, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And notice in verse 12, the, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And in, in verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired servants and followed him. It's just this really fast pace. And sometimes it can be a little bit jarring, but it's this really fast paced narrative that, that Peter is telling Mark, and this is how this happened. And, 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 and it's saying something about who Jesus is. Jesus is, uh, Mark is not worried about Jesus' reputation there's no genealogy in here. There's no, uh, there's no necessarily uh, a genealogy connecting him to the, to the kingly line of, of David. No, there's this, there's this understanding that Jesus is a man of action. He's a servant. He's come, and we'll see in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 45, that he's come to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. How? how? By giving his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is coming, and, and you can even notice in, in, the early chap, in the early in chapter 1 that, that what he is bringing is the kingdom of God. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. This is what you've been waiting for. The time of the Messiah has come, and the kingdom of God is at hand. How should you respond? Repent and believe the gospel. So the pace is hurried. The narrative is quick. It's the shortest of the gospels, as I said before. Um, and and it, it has the least amount of Jesus' teaching in it as well. Um, it, you can see the kingdom parables in chapter 4. Uh, Mark records that Jesus is parable of the sower, the lamp under the basket, the seed growing, the mustard seed, as opposed to Matthew's, his sort of his whole book is structured around these five major teachings of Jesus reflecting the Pentateuch, and Luke has at least twice as many parables, <coughs> excuse me, as Mark, and so again, it's highlighting that Mark, Peter sees Jesus as a man of action. He's, he's on his way. He's bringing the kingdom, and he's, he's fighting. He's pushing back the darkness, and, he's, and he's, he's bringing the good news of the Messiah. So Mark focuses on action, the action of the one bringing the kingdom. 
That's sort of how Mark writes. But does he have any structure? Does Mark have any structure? How does Mark understand Jesus? Well, I think he does. Um, and other people have saw this too, and I'm just, I'm just standing on their shoulders. So uh, the structure, I think, of Mark is pretty simple. It's like a, one, one commentator called it a, a, a drama in three acts, right? So we just see it as uh, number one is Jesus introduction and action. You see him introduced in chapter one and, and right away, immediately, he goes into action. That's chapter one through eight and about verse 26. And, and, and Jesus is, uh, Peter is, is seeing, is picturing Jesus as, as this man, the son of man, who, is, who has come to push back the darkness. The way he does that is through, through healing, through casting out demons, but really through preaching. If you mark out all the times that the word preach or proclaim is in there, you'll, you'll start to notice a pattern. And even, even early on, Jesus said, uh, you know, when the crowds are surrounding him, he says, come away, we, we must go to the next town so I can preach there, for that is why I came out. I came out to be a herald, a preacher, Caruso. I came out to just tell the good news about myself. Jesus is a man of action, even in his teaching. He keeps going on to the next town. So number one is Jesus introduced and in action. That's chapter one through eight. And then the second major section is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. In chapter eight, about 27 through chapter 11. Uh, Through chapter 10, ending before chapter 11. And, and this is a very important section, uh, not just for the disciples, but for the structure of this book. Because you, you, will, you will see in chapter 8, 9, and 10, Jesus gives teaching about why he came. He gives teaching about why he came out. Was it just to preach? No, it was to fulfill his preaching. And as soon as Peter, just like in Matthew, as soon as Peter declares who Jesus is, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. I should have said this earlier, but when the book's introduced and it introduces the the gospel of Mark as the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus, you could say it like this, Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. And that's what connects this Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament scriptures Christian scriptures to the New Testament Christian scriptures, and there's continuity there. And here he is, the the Messiah, coming and telling them what he's going to do. Peter declares. And then what does he say in in chapter 8, verse 31? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. Do you think the disciples got it? Chapter 9, verse 31. Well, you can just read Peter's account of did he get it or not. Because he says, you're the Christ. Jesus said, yep, I am. And the Christ is going to suffer and die. And Peter says, don't say that, Jesus, about yourself. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. That seems harsh, doesn't it? Why does he say that? Because Peter isn't thinking 
like Jesus wants him to think. He's not thinking Christianly about this. What does it mean to be the Messiah? I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, and then I'm going to bring my kingdom. Well, I am the king, I'm bringing my kingdom, but it's this already not yet. In verse, chapter 9, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Did they understand? But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus, it's like a good teacher, again in chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him (coughs) to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is what Jesus saw his life. This is his whole life as, as coming in, funneling into this one week, this one, this one time of, of uh, on his way to Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples this. Here's, here's what it's all about, guys. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And, you know, I asked, I asked you before, but does that confront the way you think about Jesus? What did he come to do? He came to suffer. And does it confront the way, does it confront your own discipleship? Do you balk at suffering? Do you wonder, does God love me? I'm suffering. Can he possibly love me? Why is there suffering in the world? Why do Christians have to suffer? And Jesus is saying, this is the way of your master. Suffering is a normal part of Christian discipleship. It's a, it's a normal part of being a Christian. It is a normal part of being in this sin-cursed world, but falling in the way of Messiah, suffering is normal. And actually, the only way you can be a disciple, the, the only way uh, you can be recognized by him as someone following him, it is if you trust in that suffering for yourself. So Jesus' intro as a man of action, in verses 1 through 8, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem teaching his disciples about what he must do in order for them to be ransomed, number two. And then number three, Jesus on his way to the cross in verses 11 through 16. And Jesus, you'll notice uh, the last half of it is the fulfillment of what he taught his disciples. He, he said what would happen and then boom, he, you know, right away he enters into more conflict in chapter 11 with the religious leaders, 12 and 13. He's teaching more about what it looks like. Uh, and then in 14 through 16, you, you see it work out as Judas betrays him, his all of his disciples forsake him. He, he's, he's tried in a, in a court 
He is, he's handed over to the Gentiles. He's delivered over to them. He's, he, the wrath of God is on him on the cross. He dies, he's buried, and he rises again. Chapter 16. This is the structure of the book of Mark. And it's all funneling into that, that one time where, where Jesus is going to suffer and die and he's going to atone for the sins of the whole world. The Son of Man must do this in order for him to be who he says he is. So that's how Mark understands Jesus. How does Jesus understand Jesus? I'm looking for a clock because I forgot to set mine. Well, it's the will of the Lord. <laughs> so how does Jesus understand Jesus? Well, you'll notice uh, in chapter 1, verse 25, that Jesus is introduced as the Son of God. Um, sorry, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, as the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then as you move to uh, verse 25, you'll see that this played out as Jesus was uh, confronting unclean spirits and demons. Um, this, this is what their title for him was. He, he says, as, uh, chapter, uh, verse 24, sorry, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? These demons are saying. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, again, uh, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out. And notice what they cried. You are the Son of God. And, and you know, while Jesus tells them to be quiet about it, he does not deny that that's what he is. Uh, he, he, he knows himself to be the son of God. He knows himself to be the one that they proclaim him to be, even though they hate him. Jesus is the son of God. And at the end of the book, uh, the Roman centurion in, in chapter 15, as he sees Jesus after the, the veil is torn and uh, Jesus' death on the cross, the Roman centurion says, surely this must be the Son of God. And Jesus was the Son of God. That's how Jesus even understood himself. But mainly, I think mainly what Mark is trying to tell us is that Jesus is the Son of Man. This is not only Mark's favorite title for Jesus in this book, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. This is what he says about himself most often. You can see it, first of all, in chapter 2, verse 10. And Jesus heals the paralytic man. Uh, first, he forgives his sins, and then he heals him. And, and the, you know, the religious elite are saying, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yes, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. But he heals him. He tells him, take up his bed and walk. And then he says this in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. 
The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then, and then in 28, he's, he's sort of, uh, in chapter 2, he's sort of like abolishing the religion of the Pharisees, the, the, the Old Testament religion, the corrupted Old Testament religion. We think the Old Testament is Christian scriptures, and all of those things were pointing towards Christ, but they had been corrupted by the religious leaders. And Jesus is sort of abolishing that. And in, in verse 28, he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And you guys are misusing it. But I'm the Son of Man, and I'm Lord over it. This is what Jesus understood himself to be. And, and you know, this, this term, son of, this title, Son of Man, uh, appears 12 times in the last nine chapters, right? So he's, he's introduced in chapter two, and then after Jesus is recognized as the Christ by Peter, he just tells himself, this, tells his disciples, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man is going to do all of this. And some people say, you know, this is just a proof of Jesus' humility and that he's, he was just a man. He knew himself to be just a man. See, Son of Man. Now, it is true that that title does reflect that he was a man, truly man, but truly God as well. And this usage is probably from the Old Testament book of Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, where it reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was uh, presented before him. And, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. I think, I believe, the author of the Scripture has a purpose in this book. And it was Jesus' purpose, even in calling himself the Son of Man, to connect himself back to the book of Daniel as this one who comes before the Ancient of Days and is given authority. And if you just read that without further context, uh, you, you may have a little compassion for Peter when he says, hey, you're not going to suffer and die. You're given authority. You're the Messiah. This is how I understand the Messiah to be. And Jesus is saying, no. I must obey all that the Father has for me to do in order for me to fulfill this role. But as the Son of Man, so as the Son of Man, Jesus knew himself to be God, human, but more than human. He knew himself to be all of these things, but he knew himself to be the one who had to suffer and die and atone for the sins of his people. He knew he, that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he would fulfill the role of Messiah. We've already been talking about that a little bit. The anointed one, the promised one. See, as the, as the scriptures uh, move forward in the, in the story of the scriptures are, are moved forward, some of the things that move it forward are these offices of Jesus, that he was the prophet, priest, and king. And we see we see. We, we see uh, even within those offices, some chaos still, don't we? You see, you see chaos in, in, uh, in Eli, 
You see chaos even in, in Saul and David and Solomon as the king. You see, you say chaos even, even in the prophets. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. Um, if they were a true prophet, they were, they were telling the word of the Lord, but most of them were killed. And so who, who would finally come and, and bring the final order out of chaos for this one? Well, Jesus knew himself to be that one, the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. It's Messiah. And in connecting himself to the office of Messiah, he's connecting himself to the seed of the woman, the one who would bruise the serpent's head. Now, there's this little thing some commentators call the messianic secret. And, and oftentimes, you know, especially with the demons, but even with his followers, they would declare him, oh, you are the Christ. Oh, you are the one. Or he would heal someone who had faith and, and they would want to go proclaim it. He'd say, no, keep it quiet because I have work still to do. I still have to, my disciples still don't get this and I need to teach them. And if we bring more crowds, it's going to be harder. So he says, keep it quiet. And rarely do they ever keep it quiet. But it's this, this sort of messy, you know, so-called messianic secret where he, he has a reason for it though. Don't tell because I have work still to be done. It's truly God, truly man. He was the son of David, and it was most often that the outcasts recognized him. You, you could think of uh, the story of blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10, um, verse 46, you know, right after Jesus said, I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And, you know, just coincidentally, uh, Peter talks, uh, tells Mark to write down uh, this story, verse 46. And they came to Jer Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They rebuked him. They told him to knock it off. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It was the, it was the blind. It was the beggars. It was the outcasts that actually recognized who he was. And that leads me from looking at how Jesus understands himself to how the people understood Jesus. And we're going to wrap this up quickly, okay? Uh, how, how did the people understand who Jesus was? Well, if you, if you read through the book, I, just, I, I encourage you to read through it in one sitting and just mark out all the responses that you see to Jesus. You'll, you'll see a lot of them. Some were amazed, some marveled. Some were incensed by him. Some were offended by him. But there really are like, you know, three categories of, of people that respond to Jesus. There's three, three categories of response to Jesus. There is confusion. You've probably heard these before. There's confusion. There's faith. And then there's opposition. You can see I wonder if you can guess who was confused by him. Well, a lot of people, but especially his disciples, right? Do we often hold up the disciples as like these, 
you know, super characters. In your mind, they had lots of faith. Well, you read through the Gospels and you see like, oh man, they, they were confused like I am sometimes. There's, there's lots of, you know, a misunderstanding of who Jesus actually was and, and telling, him, telling them who he was. In chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus calms the sea, and, uh, and says, don't you guys have faith? Do you still have no faith? Uh, G- the disciples look at each other. They were filled with great fear. It's not what Jesus was wanting for them. And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? They're confused. You, f- you flip back to chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, it wasn't just the disciples who were confused. It was his own family who was confused about him. Uh, in verse 21, um, they had heard some things about him. And, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. That Jesus is crazy and we're going to have to get him committed. This, is, this isn't good. They're confused about him. The people who live with Jesus, who, who raised Jesus, who were brothers and sisters with Jesus. There's confusion about him. Uh, I will just say, you know, uh, in some ways that's encouraging to me. Um, I, I, I think we all have lots of confusion. We're all in different places in our journey about, about who we understand Jesus to be and what he actually, uh, what he actually is doing or has done and, and what he actually wants in my life. And, uh, it, it's a little bit encouraging that, you know, you can have confusion about Jesus, uh, and, and you can, you can, you can be like the disciples who don't know everything there is to know about who he is, even though they lived with him. You, you say, you know, if, I, if Jesus would just come and live with me for a little while, if I could just see him, if he'd give me a sign. Look, these people live with Jesus and were confused by him. So might you be. And yet that's not the end of the story. The disciples, and, and it, it, you know, if, if John was a part of, of this group that thought Jesus was crazy, eventually he becomes one of his disciples. James becomes one of his disciples. And... Um, and, uh, and they actually do great things for God and, are, and are, end up dying because of their faith. Now, that might not seem encouraging to you, but it is meant to, it is meant to tell you that you won't always stay confused if you have a heart to receive who Jesus is. The second group of people was a group who responded to him in faith. And I mentioned this earlier, but it's all the, the, it's all the rabble it's, it's, all, it's all of those who were sort of unclean. It's, it's those who were, were lepers. The Syrophoenician woman who said, you know, even the dogs get the crumbs from the children's plate. It's those kind of people who Mark holds up as the suppliants, the, the, the ones that are unclean, the outcasts of society. These are the ones that respond to Jesus in true faith. So Mark is telling us, even the Roman centurion I read before, this surely is the Son of God. And then the third group category of people is those who are in opposition to him. 
The, the Pharisees, they, they hold counsel to destroy him in chapter 3, verse 6. You, you, you can see them. Uh, they, don't, they don't like what Jesus says. They don't like him abolishing their religion. And so they go out and hold can, counsel to destroy him. And there were people who took offense at him. You remember in, in chapter 6 in, in um, the story about him going to his hometown? And then when, what's he end up saying? A prophet has no honor in his hometown? Because they took offense at the things that he was doing and, and who, he says he, who he says he was. It's like, who do you think you are? We know you. You're the carpenter. We know your brothers and sisters. And you're telling us you're the son of God? That's crazy. The religious people uh, are constantly in conflict with him. They know the Old Testament scriptures, but they don't really know them. Because if they did, they would have known Jesus. They, they would have had faith in him. And they try to trap him in chapter 12, verse 13, and they, and they, and they end up uh, getting one of their own. The traps didn't work. They, they get uh, Judas to, to betray Jesus with a kiss. And I just want to ask you, as we wrap it up, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at how people understood Jesus. How do you understand Jesus? Uh, I, do you see him as a threat to your freedom? You, you could be here really interested in what Christians are like, and I, 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 I hope to get to know you a little bit more, but you could be an atheist, you could be an agnostic, you could just be really interested. Um, but I wonder how you see Jesus. Is he a threat to, is he a threat to your freedom? Maybe you've been uh, going to church all of your life, Maybe since you, know, since you were a kid, your parents had you in Sunday school and, and in church, and you know the songs, and maybe you even know catechism, and uh, you know parts of the Bible. Um, but maybe you don't see him as a threat at all, but, but maybe you just don't see him correctly because you think your religion is what saves you. You being good and, and coming to church here on Sunday morning and reading the Bible and praying, that, that is what gets you into heaven. And Jesus is, is, is not that. He's not, your, he's not your good buddy. If Jesus never opposes a thought that you have, you have the wrong view of Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, I, I am the promised one who came to give up my life in your place. I, I, I was the one who was promised to bruise the head of the serpent, and the way I was going to do that was to give up my life for you. So we could read through Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. This is who Jesus understood himself to be. It's, this is what he had to do in order to rescue sinners like us. He had to die, take the wrath of God on himself, the wrath that you and I earned, that, that, that the wrath for the sins that you sinned this morning against Jesus, against God, the sins against your, your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, your, uh, your, your fellow employees, your employer, those sins deserve the eternal wrath of God. And, and Jesus said, as the suffering servant, I will be so marked and so marred that you can't recognize me. I will be taking on that. 
I will be baptized with the baptism that you cannot be baptized with. I will drink the cup of wrath that you cannot drink. I will do that in your place. And then I will rise again. And I will be victorious. And the response that he expects from that kingdom proclamation is repentance and faith. So who do you say Jesus is? Who is he? And have you bowed your knee to him? I encourage you to do that today, friend. Repent of your sins. That means turn away from your rebellion and receive the salvation that only Jesus can offer. Turn to him and be saved. Believe in him. That that means a, a trust in the promises of God that he will appease God's wrath. He will justify you. He, he will sanctify you. He will glorify you. And he's done it through his work on the cross. And this is what Mark's about. The son of man going to cross to die for the sins of the world and rise again in victory. This is the story of the suffering king. And this is what we're going to be looking at for the next however long, year or so. I, my prayer is that we dive in to the book as a people and let it affect everything we do. The gospel changes everything. It changes everything. It's meant to change even the way you wake up in the morning on a cloudy day. It's meant to, way, to change the way you interact with your wife, your spouse, your, your kids, your, your, your roommates, your professors. It changes everything. The story of the suffering king is for you, Christian, good. And for you, non-Christian, it's an invitation to come. Behold the suffering king and turn to him. He will forgive you of your sins. Let's pray. Father, In this time, we turn to you, those who have failed you, have misunderstood you. God, at times we've deprived others of the true image of you. Lord Jesus, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Forgive us, O God, for our failings. Forgive us for our rebellion. Forgive us for our sin. Father, I ask for your people and that you would use the gospel to show us how serious our sins are, but more to show us how great our Savior is. Show us, O Christ, your great love. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your loving kindness. Blot out all of our transgressions for Christ's sake. Amen.